Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Alrighty, everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in by a special guest whom I've been keeping an eye on um, with his content over the last few months in particular because the sort of stuff that he posts is very much up my alley um, and he definitely sort of speaks my language. So I really want to welcome Gage to the show. So welcome, Gage. Hi, thank you for inviting me. This is pretty awesome. Um, so I really do hope that the echo isn't happening, <laughs> but I, th- I think it's not, I guess. Um, so my name is Gage. I am a blogger, writer, kind of a researcher in a way, uh, maybe an independent researcher or something like that. I got into it... Um, kind of was just curious about things at first, like kind of like, like if I had like symptoms or if I got like prescribed medication or something, I would just get like really curious and then I would like take it really far. And then I started wanting to understand more like consciousness in general. And then I kind of like started to do things like I would try all these different nootropics and try to kind of like build this kind of a map of the receptors and what they do to each other and to your body and your brain and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I find um, when you end up going, like exploring a couple of these like receptors and neurotransmitter pathways, you end up just going down a massive rabbit hole and um, you end up like snowball searching where you're just like, (laughs) you end up just, you end up in just no man's land sort of thing. So maybe we can sort of start out by um, giving our listeners um, insight into what you enjoy researching. Sure. Yeah. Um, One of the most kind of central things has been, Dynorphin, which is, um, it is the, so, so I don't know how technical I should get. I, I sometimes have a problem with being too technical, but I'm going to try to make it like a mix of technical and, uh, broad at the same time, but it is basically the body's own, um, uh, if you've heard of the drug salvia, uh, that is 
very similar to dynorphin. Um, dynorphin binds as an agonist to the kappa opioid receptors, which are unlike the other opioid receptors. They are uh, dysphoric, actually. Um, and I've kind of just rabbit holed a lot on that topic. And I've also explored a lot into like psychedelics and schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, and I kind of think that, uh, so like a lot of people think that psychedelics are really a bad thing for schizophrenia. I don't actually think that. I think that they might actually treat schizophrenia instead and so like some of my like really big projects like especially dynorphin theory um has focused a little bit on that like kind of suggesting that um schizophrenia is not necessarily like psychedelics although there might be some people that are probably like that naturally but I think most people that are experiencing like schizophrenic symptoms are probably more like the drug salvia, which um, I think I think people tend to kind of just lump together all these uh, like hallucinogens, if you want to call them that, together. Um, but they're not really that similar. Their mechanisms differ. They have some different correlates and stuff like that. Like for example. Um, and stop me if I go too far, by the way. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so like with, uh, dynorphin, um, or like, let's say like salvia, uh, the mechanism that it stimulates, it suppresses glutamate activity. And I think that's like one of the big ways that it probably impacts, um, perception and, uh, that's different from something like LSD or psilocybin, which would actually increase glutamate release in some parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex. And uh, so salvia, if assuming that it does what kappa opioid receptors do, um, I don't remember if I found uh, specific studies talking about salvia doing this, but uh, the kappa opioid receptor stimulation suppresses glutamate release, which kind of makes it in a way similar to like dissociatives, like ketamine um, or PCP or something like that. Uh, those drugs still are different though, because they also increase glutamate release indirectly so for uh, so that's like a way that dissociatives and psychedelics, like things like ketamine, overlap with mm. LSD in that way is that they probably like uh, get the mind like really ramped up, mm. uh, especially dose dependently. Probably at a higher dose, I think ketamine would probably start to look more like salvia. Probably, yeah, maybe. What we might do is um, just for my listeners, because they definitely don't have this degree of um, understanding. So maybe we'll sort of backtrack a little bit and um, give our listeners a bit of an insight into what, like there are many different types of opioid receptors and, and, and we're specifically discussing the kappa opioid receptor. And for them, I think the best way that they can potentially relate to it is... Um, the commonly used nootropic lion's mane, which um, potentially contains a, a mild kappa opioid agonist. Um, whether or not that's true outside the in vivo studies, that's a different story. But maybe um, how can we sort of discuss the, the link between um, potentially exercise and even sauna use um, to the, the kappa opioid network? Yeah. So I didn't actually know that about lion's mane. That's really interesting. Um, I, I don't think I've tried. I think I, I might have tried it once. But anyways, so I guess we could start with, okay, so 
There are like three major types of opioid receptors. There's like the mu opioid receptor, which is kind of classically known for being euphoric. That is like the thing that people would think with like heroin or uh, codeine or Vicodin or whatever. Um, and then there's the delta opioid receptor, which is kind of ignored by a lot of people, I think, but it's probably more similar to the mu opioid receptor. Like a lot of the things that it does tend to kind of support the same mechanisms as the mu opioid receptor. But then the kappa opioid receptor is very much different. It does very opposite things compared to um, mu opioid receptors, especially. So, for example, um, mu opioid mu opioid receptors can stimulate like dopamine activity yep. and be probably pretty motivating and mm. stuff like that. Uh, but kappa opioid receptors suppress dopamine release, so it's actually like the opposite. And there's like a ton of uh, opposites with these two systems, like from the fact of like mu opioids being euphoric and then kappa opioids being dysphoric. Um, the same is true for like anxiety. Uh, if you, yeah, the kappa opioid receptor is like anxious. Uh, it's linked to like PTSD. Um, it is linked to aversion learning. So like learning to kind of, uh, uh, be afraid of things to, um, avoid things to have an aversive reaction to things. And then on the opposite end, uh, the mu opioids, uh, they kind of reinforce everything. They, uh, make you more likely to repeat things. So like if you were like take something like Vicodin while you're doing like say exercise or something, you could probably end up finding yourself more uh, like, I, I don't know if I would say addicted to exercising, but you might tend to start craving it. Like in the same way that people might crave the opioid drugs, you can probably link that craving to like a bunch of different stuff. I don't recommend doing that, of course, because that gets into weird things. Yep. Um, but then with kappa opioids, it would be the opposite. Like if you were to take salvia in your room, I think that it would lead to becoming less comfortable in general in your room which is kind of weird i don't i don't know if that's true but i suspect that that's probably what will happen like if you kept dosing you'd probably start to feel uncomfortable every time you entered that space and people people report like really bad experiences with salvia but there are some people that report um not like kind of neutral experiences too um, and then you mentioned saunas. That's kind of interesting because um, saunas, uh, I've heard that they increase dynorphin activity. And I think yeah. the reason, so like one of the things that dynorphin does is lowers body temperature. So it can actually induce hypothermia. Mm. And... So when you're in a sauna, I'm guessing that what happens is probably that your body is trying to compensate for the heat mm. and it's releasing that. And that could have benefits. Like you could be uh, desensitizing the dynorphin effects. Like say, say that you're normally sensitive to heat and it makes you get like side effects. If you go into a sauna, you might actually find that you're like very tolerant of normal temperatures all of a sudden. And probably you'll have like a mood boost because there's no dynorphin trying to compensate for um, 
like the heat anymore. And kind of on the opposite end again, uh, the mu opioid system uh, seems to be able to induce fever. And that's kind of an interesting thing. And it gets even weirder. And I don't know like the reasons behind this yet totally, but uh, the fever mechanism connects to the same mechanism as LSD's main target. So, so it's like really weird. And like that probably ties into the way that people uh, will like take LSD to quit addictions. Mm. And I don't know if that's the reason for treating the addictions though. Like that there's like multiple ways that it could probably um, achieve that effects and there's like other receptors that have been uh, researched that are linked to um, suppressing like the withdrawal symptoms of morphine Um, so how how are we so far is this going well this is this is good this is good i'll probably bring it back down another notch because it's um yeah i think for my listeners they probably aren't familiar with um some of these some of these opioid pathways but it's it's still it's still relevant i'll try and just simplify it a little bit so um perhaps we can sort of segue into some of the serotonin receptors because i mean i'm someone who's researching them all the time and trying to understand the different subtypes um you know for for my listeners so basically um Serotonin is, an, is a neurotransmitter that our brains produce and there are multiple um, receptor sites in which it can um, bind to in the brain and also in the gut and other parts of the body. Um, but to understand them, we first have to realise that they are also connected to other neurotransmitter systems, so like the heterodimer of the 5-HT2A and the D2-like receptors, so they're, they're very much linked. So when we try and research and understand these receptor subtypes, it's important to sort of look at how they influence other neurotransmitter systems because there are many supplements, many drugs and um, psychedelics that target these same receptors. For example, we know that, um, let's say St. John's Wort, for example, um, St. John's wort has been shown to upregulate both the 1A, serotonin 1A, 5-HT1A, and also the 5-HT2A receptor. So if we understand what that's, where it's being upregulated and so which region of the brain, because that's also very important, then we can sort of understand, we can use it as a probe to figure out... Um, what sort of implications this will have, what sort of behavioral effects these will have um, because we know that, and there's a lot of research on how, you know, the 5-HT2A receptor can influence oxytocin, prolactin, cortisol, ACTH. And these are all the, the hormones that a lot of people will describe in things like adrenal fatigue or anhedonia. So um, I guess maybe... Let's start with the 5-HT2A receptor because I know you've researched that quite a lot. Um, so maybe did you want to explain a little bit about just the, the, the receptor itself um, and potentially some things that can bind to it or influence its activity? Yeah. So this is probably the most focused on receptor for all of the psychedelic drugs, um, psilocybin, LSD, and stuff like that. There's also research on like antipsychotics where they block, they either block the receptor or they do what's called inverse agonism, which I recently found out that when you do that, when you use, when you do the inverse agonism, it actually increases the number of receptors, wow. and that gets kind of interesting. Like some researchers think that that, like, like it's not really the inverse agonism itself that's beneficial. Instead, it's the increasing the receptors that fixes 
like problems with like schizophrenia or Alzheimer's. Um, so, so yeah, so this receptor is studied for cognition and memory too. It uh, seems that stimulating it uh, increases like neuroplasticity, mm. uh, neurogenesis. Um, it seems to suppress dynorphin activity, which is really interesting. That's kind of like that one idea kind of like set me off into a whole bunch of things, uh, like research rabbit holes and stuff. Um, so you're saying, you're saying that the 2A receptor actually suppresses that dysphoric, um, opioid, the dynorphin saying that yeah it seems so but it's probably like more complicated because like like the 1a receptor and the 2c receptor they all connect to each other and like with like the 2c receptor which is kind of like the the sibling receptor of the 5hd2a receptor Mm. it does some opposite things like like so there's like research showing that you can suppress um, like aversion processing in the brain with 5-HT2A stimulation. So, for, for my for my listeners, can you explain what aversion what what aversion actually is? Yeah, it's like um, basically the thing you don't like. Well, I would describe it as like the thing about pain that you don't like. Like if it wasn't aversive, I think it would just feel like a really strong sensation that was neutral. Mm. So it's basically like the negative experience of things. Um, And so like pain, fear, anxiety, depression, all of those things would kind of be an aversion based uh problem for the most part um and then like ptsd that's like extreme aversion learning like if you think of like i I kind of always like to compare addiction and ptsd as being like the opposites like addiction is like extreme reinforcement learning and then ptsd is extreme aversion learning which it's like one is pleasurable, supposedly, to a point, until it becomes horrible, right? Yeah. Addiction, I mean. But um, And then PTSD is just kind of like the same, like, scarring of your brain with uh, extreme negative experiences instead of positive. I mean, addiction is a little bit more complicated there because the withdrawals are extremely negative. So it's like a loop of, like being traumatized every time you try to stop in a way. <laughs> but um, so with the 2A receptor, it seems to suppress um, aversion processing. And those studies were done on stuff like MDMA and LSD and like some weird experimental research chemicals. But then the thing with the 2C receptor which they're both connected and they seem to interact. And I don't understand that part yet. Um, the 2C receptor is linked to PTSD. People who have, or at least, I, think it, I think it was animal studies actually. Animals that have more of the 2C receptors are like really prone to getting traumatic um, behavioral expressions in response to like being traumatized. Right. And... I don't know. I think it probably does a lot of the opposite things. Like when you take SSRIs, a lot of the bad effects are supposedly related to the 2C receptor. And I think 1A, 2A, and 2C, I think they all are connected in some way that is like regulating trauma learning, um, reward learning, like trauma learning, all that kind of stuff like how strong emotions are maybe too. Yeah. So with that 5-HT2C receptor, is that one of those weird ones where both agonism and antagonism can down-regulate? Is that, is that right or is it's a bit more I think so, yeah. Than that? 
I think it is like that too. Mm. Um, like, uh, I don't know studies on the top of my head, but for, from what I could remember, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so that means that for potentially if we are able to find um, natural substances, or I know there are many pharmacological interventions to antagonize that 2C receptor. A good example is ciproheptadine um, because that's a bit of a broad-spectrum anti-serotonin agent. Um, But from what I've understood about that receptor is that even antagonism of that 2C receptor can actually increase dopamine release in the prefrontal cortex. And I think you discussed that briefly in the um, Discord forum at one stage. Hmm. So, so you said the 2C receptor, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think, yeah, I think the stimulation of that receptor suppresses dopamine release. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Like I haven't confirmed this part yet, but so it releases this uh, corticopterin or corticoptin releasing hormone or something. It's like CRH. I usually just use the abbreviation. Yeah, yeah. Um, Corticotrophin releasing hormone, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so that stuff stimulates uh, dynorphin release. And both of them are like they're both necessary cofactors for experiencing like what seems to be like just negative feeling in general, like things feeling bad. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that like the 2C receptor is like probably increases dynorphin, but the studies that were on LSD, they showed that like kappa opioid receptor and like dynorphin are, uh, attenuated, like decreased by, um, acute use of LSD and also long-term redosing of it. Um, and that's only like one study though. So that's like, like, it's kind of weird. It's like not like we definitely need like more evidence for that whole part of it. Um, yeah. So what do you think? Yeah, maybe we can sort of um, segue into a little bit on the NMDA receptor system because that is obviously discussed a lot in the context of magnesium supplementation and a lot of people, a lot of my audience will be using magnesium. So maybe we can talk about um, how magnesium acts as a very mild NMDA antagonist and sort of how that influences calcium um, influx and then also why the whole NMDA system exists. Like what is, what even, what is this, what is the NMDA system? So, so NMDA receptors are glutamate receptors and they're pretty popular in the brain. Um, I don't know specifically like how popular I've heard something like 50% of neurons though. So it's like, it's like a hugely central mechanism to a lot of things. And so, so it is a calcium channel and uh, magnesium normally kind of guards the gate of that receptor basically. And if you, uh, basically, like other glutamate receptors, like the AMPA receptor, uh, when that gets like stimulated enough, um, the magnesium can be like dislodged from blocking NMDA, and then that allows glutamate into the NM uh, allows NMDA to be activated by uh, calcium. I mean, it lets the calcium enter the cell and. So there's like so many interesting things about um, this receptor. It's like one of my favorite topics. It is the receptor that ketamine blocks Mm. and probably how it produces the majority of its effects. 
and its effects are pretty crazy compared to like like if you take like something like a dopamine agonist it's like i don't know you get motivated but it's not really that crazy usually like maybe if you take like a crazy amount i don't know but um with ketamine you like completely lose your sense of reality you um hallucinate you kind of can't figure out how to operate your body at certain doses and stuff like that so it's like really significant um and so magnesium if you take that it would be kind of decreasing um stimulation of the nmda receptor especially like protecting against uh, excitotoxicity which like NMDA receptors are kind of the main, as far as I can tell, they're pretty much the main mechanism for brain damage, like just across the board, pretty much. Yeah. Like if you get a stroke, if you have seizures, um, like probably concussions, um, like even the mechanisms of just like many other systems, like, like, Probably even like coronavirus, for example, is probably stimulating NMDA receptors to induce brain damage and stuff like that. Um, so probably magnesium would probably be a good thing to be taking right now, I'm guessing. I mean, I won't, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to, I won't say that with like absolute certainty, especially because this is such a new thing. Yeah. Um. And NMDA receptors, they seem so. The thing that's different, at least this is this is what I think is the most important difference uh, between like an NMDA receptor and other glutamate receptors. I think it's that, um, like, like most of the glutamate or the the the, the other common glutamate receptor ANPA receptors, they're very like short acting and short firing like they turn on and off really quick whereas the nmda receptor is turning on much longer and like my own hypotheses about this is that like like if you like take a light in the dark and you like put it in front of your eyes and it like trails i think that's because of nmda receptors like I'm not super positive. That's something I actually really want to test. And I'm kind of building an experiment right now in university that's kind of about that topic. But um, I think like a lot of different aspects of like perception and cognition and like working memory are related to this receptor, the NMDA receptor. I think it kind of like, kind of like stains your brain activity longer in a sense so that like it's it's kind of acting as a like a short-term memory on that level right and it also the activation of it enhances like long-term potentiation which is like a much more like long uh acting sensitivity uh to the cells like if you if you reach long-term potentiation it basically means that those neurons are more sensitive in the future to be activated. So like part of learning would be kind of that you, um, the more that you like repeat something, for example, uh, you would eventually potentiate like a whole system of neurons, like a whole network of them so that like, like all these different pathways and things are, kind of like highlighted so like the next time you go to do that thing it is like more sensitive than anything else you could do like if you learn that something is the right answer that answer becomes more sensitive compared to just like random arbitrary noise or like yeah so um maybe you could ask more questions to direct this yeah, sure, sure. So with um, we'll sort of go back onto like the magnesium, and that's influencing the NMDA receptor. But also, um, we have other minerals as well. So we have zinc that can also influence that um, calcium channel, and then also um, 
glycine as well because I know a lot of people are supplementing with, with glycine and I'm actually someone who if I take glycine, I'll wake up the next day actually feeling a bit um, spacey or like a bit depersonalized. Um, and so I'm trying to understand that a little bit more like to figure out how that's causing that sort of um, spacey sort of feeling. It sort of feels like there's a bit of a like a heaviness in the head. Um, it's a pretty bizarre. I know a lot of other people have actually experienced that. My older brother has also experienced that as well. So um, how does glycine, because I know that glycine interacts with the NMDA receptors, potentially a co-agonist at that receptor. So uh, glycine is needed for NMDA receptor activity. Uh, Like if you didn't have any, you wouldn't be able to get any uh, NMDA receptor activity, I'm pretty sure. Um, Yeah, the stuff you mentioned, glycine is another interesting point like the the way that people react to it especially because like for example like a lot of glycine type drugs are used to treat schizophrenia but the side effects are basically like manic symptoms and so like i'll often use that kind of distinction to kind of show that like bipolar and or at least manic and like psychotic type states are not really the same. There's probably like, they're probably like, I think manic is like psychedelic pretty much. Whereas like psychotic might be more like salvia or dissociative. And glycine seems to um, treat like uh, the dissociative problems with like schizophrenia. And like my own reaction I don't know, like I've been taking theanine, which is like really popular. I loved it. I'm kind of like mixed on it right now, to be honest, because I swear I think I've gotten like withdrawal symptoms from it, which is like... At what dose? um, It was like probably, uh, like I was using Soylent, (laughs) which the cafe Soylent has 75 milligrams of theanine. And I was also taking it at night in a powder form and stuff to sleep. Mm. I mean, there was like other factors, I think, because I was taking like magnesium glycinate. Um, there was, there was like other stuff. I don't remember everything, but like I was like eating for like fermented foods, which are like gab, GABA. Sometimes oh. there's GABA in it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate the influence of these, uh, the psychobiotic effect of these fermented foods. I mean, I'm some yeah. Who, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, some of them are really powerful. Um, and the thing about them is that they can be very delayed as well in their, in their effects. Like from my experience with certain like sauerkraut mixes, um, they can have a very delayed effect on tech. Like realistically, they've, they've influenced the way I think, like just some of the thought patterns are just very different. Um, but yeah, these um, are you similar in that regard with some of these like fermented foods? Totally. Like I like even when this started, like basically what happened, like I was making this ramen with um, it was ghost pepper ramen with like this fermented tofu, which is intensely flavorful. It's made with like some kind of yeast, I think. So it's not a bacterial uh, probiotic or whatever. And then I was mixing kimchi into it. And I did this like three days in a row. And then after that, I woke up like having hot flashes and freaking out. And then like, I don't know, like I stopped theanine. I stopped like eating the ramen. I stopped eating spicy food. And like I felt honestly kind of traumatized by whatever that was. And like, I don't know, I've had other weird experiences. Like my friend made homemade kimchi and I, man, that's like the sketchiest thing. I feel like, like, I know a lot of people are doing that. I think like you really have to like, make sure you wash your hands and like do everything right when you're like preparing it. Mm. Um, But like we would eat this stuff 
And like, there would be like visual effects. Like, I swear, it's like, like we would eat it, and then like 30 minutes later, everything looks kind of glowy. And like, I don't know if we ever had anaracetam, but it's yeah, 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 yeah. It's like pretty much like that. Mm. And I don't know. There was like other effects. Like honestly, it would change day to day. The flavor would change day to day, and whatever it did would change day to day. And that just like kind of. Like freaked me out, and I didn't eat it after that because I don't know. Like some of the some of the symptoms were getting weird, mm. and yeah, I think I don't know. Like I I feel like you can get like a huge range of effects from probiotics. Like I I consider them psychoactive pretty much. 100%. What with the with the kimchi and the sauerkraut fermented foods? What do you suspect? I mean, I've got my theories as to why they or how they're acting, but have you delved into any research in relation to, you know, we know that it's going to be affecting um, the, the serotonin receptors in the gut, but is there anything else that sort of stood out or that you'd like to research a little bit more? Yeah, they have like, so they do have just actual GABA in them. Like that's usually a byproduct of the bacteria. Uh, there's stuff like tyramine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tyramine is weird. Like, and I'm pretty sensitive to tyramine. Like yeah. if I eat chocolate, uh, I tend to get migraines, which sucks. And like sometimes it won't even be pain. It's like just visual effects. And that's like even weirder. Like I'll go blind and just like half my eye or something. And um, even stuff like that, like I feel like like migraine auras and seizure auras, I feel like that you could pretty much just describe that as like folk, like how there's like focal seizures. I feel like this is like focal psychedelia. It's just like a trip and just like one little section of your brain is like freaking out or like just half your eyes like tripping balls or something. Mm. Um, but there's GABA. There's also MSG in and a lot of these things. Fermented um, cabbage, things like that. Yeah, like, um, I don't know about kimchi. I know there's glutamate and glutamine probably. Um, With like the fermented tofu, I'm pretty sure that had MSG. Uh, I think soy sauce is technically a fermented food and that's um, got MSG for sure. Um, I don't don't remember others. I think even like some cheeses, like I think blue cheese might have had MSG in it too. Um, but yeah, a lot of people think MSG is not active. I think it totally is, but I think it depends. Like when I've eaten MSG on an empty stomach, like a bunch of it, like one time I was at my job and I just ate like a bunch of Chex Mix on an empty stomach. And then when I'm driving, I thought I had chest pain, but then like what I realized is it was my seatbelt, like the pressure of my seatbelt on my skin felt like super thick and heavy. And it's like, I don't know. And it kind of, that kind of like fits into what, what I think. Cause it, cause it's an NMDA receptor stimulating chemical. Yeah. MSG is. And kind of like fits into the whole like theory of what the receptors are doing. Like, like if, if blocking the receptor, like with ketamine or PCP is, um, anesthesia then maybe this is exactly the opposite of anesthesia which might be why it's so great for uh taste because um maybe it's like just uh making us extremely sensitive to our taste is that that part of potentially how it's like reinforcing and and potentially addictive in that in, in that nature potential yeah i think so so that that is super interesting that you've said that because nmda receptors are studied in addiction and i never actually linked that to the msg thing though which is totally addictive too yeah um and mda the way i think of the nmda receptors in terms of like addiction I think that when you, like, if you were to mix it, if you were to mix, like, even theanine, I think if you mix it with doing something else, I think you might be really sensitive at first. Like, I feel like it's, like, just exposing your senses and your feelings to that experience. But then 
you'll quickly adapt much faster. Like in the same way that like more like significant event, significant events um, kind of like imprint into your memory harder or like more emotional events kind of stick into your memory much more than like arbitrary, random, nothing, like just arbitrary events. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of like enhancing acutely, but uh, in the long term, I think it's going to produce tolerance much faster. And then like, like there's like research showing if you block this receptor, uh, you can actually prevent tolerance yeah. and even reverse it, which is yeah. really interesting. That's part of how um, a lot of people have been discussing agmatine in that regard for potentiating opioids. Um, it's definitely a compound I need to um, get more familiar with because I haven't really uh, experimented with agmatine for many, many, uh, many, many years now. So maybe we can sort of segue into... Um, a little bit on caffeine and nicotine because I know these are ubiquitous. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what sort of maybe like the addictive nature or like what makes these stimulants so depleting in a sense. Mm, so, so with nicotine, there is um, like, like the mechanisms of nicotine that enhance cognitive ability those ones uh link up to the nmda receptor um they also are supposed to suppress dynorphin activity wow um but the thing that we see is that when people do nicotine a lot uh like repeated doses makes you really sensitive to dynorphin in the kappa opioid system wow like I actually think that that is like people talk about schizophrenia and like how like a huge amount of them smoke and use nicotine. And like a lot of researchers used to say that it's um, because of the cognitive enhancing effects. And I do think that in some sense that is true, but I think that that's like an acute effect. And I think it becomes even more acute the more that you uh, use it and like I I've kind of written about this a little bit before I I actually think that nicotine could be like one of the factors that is a risk for schizophrenia like I think it could be that you're basically like making yourself um, really sensitive to dynorphin which is kind of supposed to be it's kind of supposed to be the withdrawal effects, supposedly, of like a lot of drugs like cocaine, stimulants, uh, morphine, uh, nicotine. Like the withdrawals are like enhanced dynorphin activity, which makes you like anhedonic, lazy, uh, uh, dysphoric, maybe anxious, afraid. And um, so, so I didn't mentioned this before but but the way that i think you could view like the whole association of dynorphin and schizophrenia it's kind of like like so dynorphin is basically a stress hormone for the most part and i think its role is to kind of teach you not to do things like if like if you touch something and it burns i think part of the pain uh, reaction that you have is dynorphin and like substance P and a bunch of stuff. But the dynorphin part of it, I think is the part that's like saying like, no, don't do that again. Yeah. And it kind of like scars your memory mm. so that you're like, like you'll just anticipate suffering the next time you see that stimuli. And with like, like if you think about that in terms of like schizophrenia, I think it's pretty much that the schizophrenics are like so sensitive to stress or that they've experienced so much stress because of their environment or both, probably usually both. It probably needs a little bit of both for you to get that bad, although it's debatable, I guess. 
But um, it's like if you're so stressed out enough that you begin to get like hallucinogenic salvia type effects from stress and um, I do think that you can get it even if you're not schizophrenic. Like I don't think you have to necessarily have genes that make you sensitive to hallucinating to, because of stress. Like there's like some research on solitary confinement. Oh, yeah. yeah, I love that stuff. It's interesting. That's crazy. It's sad. They can literally, they can induce schizophrenia by keeping them, <clears throat> keeping people confined in a, in a, small space right what, what, what was that study exactly so i think that there's like a couple different ones that talk about this i think that they're actually observing people that are imprisoned um i think some of them might be psych hospitals where like a patient might have gone in with things like not so severe mm. and then they um end up getting like really schizophrenic when they're like locked in a bedroom 24 seven and supposedly being treated in, in lockdown. Right. <laughs> yeah. In uh, coronavirus lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> and then people start talking about like the 5g and yeah. <laughs> all that. <laughs> yeah. Which, um, which potentially would influence the NMDA. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's really interesting and scary. Like even like I'm pretty sure 4G even does that. Um, that's weird. Like it's weird that they dismiss that. Like people dismiss it with MSG and now they'll dismiss it with 5G. It's funny. MSG, 5G, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, th- I think there was, there was something that we went off tangent with like the stress and the, Oh, I think it was addiction. So I think with nicotine, you're kind of like, uh, a lot of people are probably like, they might start off just using it because for whatever reason, maybe they were curious, maybe being curious about using nicotine is like a risk factor. And then like you become like, like you find it helps with like stress. Then, you start to notice that you become less able to handle stress without it. Then it gets like, just like escalating effects. Like every time it wears off, you're getting like, you're linking the withdrawal effects to like everything around you. Like maybe, maybe you like have one day at job at your job where you're like coping with stress and you smoke more. And then, um, then it kind of like bleeds over where like you get withdrawal effects from increasing your use. And then it's like a normal day and you're having those withdrawal effects. And now that day is like stressful all of a sudden. And then it just kind of like goes down a rabbit hole where you're coping with the withdrawal symptoms basically. And I think a lot of people with schizophrenia are actually doing this. I think that, like there was like one study that said 80% of like it was like i think it was like 80 to 90% of people with schizophrenia smokes cigarettes wow yeah and it's like pretty crazy it's like they rationalize that they might be self medicating but it's like come on like yeah that's such a huge percentage like why isn't there like a lot of like, like you, you're pretty much saying that it's really rare for a schizophrenic person to not use nicotine. That's just so sketchy. <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, I think there's truth to it. Like, I do think it would increase cognition acutely and help. But um, and you mentioned like other drugs. Like, I don't remember. You said nicotine and like other things. Uh, nicotine and caffeine as well, because they're obviously similar alkaloids. Uh, and commonly used as well. Um, but let's maybe with with caffeine, um, and I know it influences nicotine's um, excretion and also its pharmacokinetics and things like that. Um, but with caffeine withdrawal, for example, um, which I believe develops, or well, tolerance develops rapidly, I think within potentially, what, two to three days for most people, you know, tolerance starts to kick in. Um, but the whole withdrawal process, um, what do you think, apart from its 
effects on the adenosine system, what else do you think is playing a role in its like um, withdrawal-like symptoms? Um, so with caffeine, it's probably, um, there's probably definitely dynorphin activity involved there too. Like, like pretty much any drug that stimulates dopamine or glutamate has the potential of increasing dynorphin activity. I think it's like basically like a like a response to try to control any kind of toxicity pretty much like, cause like seizures, seizures will like stimulate a bunch of like glutamate. Like it's kind of like a glutamate storm and then dynorphin comes in and it actually suppresses seizures. Like you could administer dynorphin as an anticonvulsant. Um, and it can be neuroprotective, but it's really tricky. It's also able to be neurotoxic. Um, so, like, when people do drugs, it's probably, like, if it's, like, any kind of super normal stimulus that, um, like, pro- probably on most systems, like, like think if you think of NMDA receptors and is being involved in, like, learning, it's probably, like, like, the tolerance to all these different systems and, like, just l- ha- having your body learn to react to your environment or whatever stimuli, like just in general is probably going to stimulate that mechanism. Like, like everything in our life, we just kind of adapt and get numb to, I feel like, and probably, I don't, I don't know, but that's kind of like going on a tangent, but like with, yeah, with caffeine, caffeine's kind of interesting too. Like there's, there's mechanisms in it. I think it's through the adenosine mechanism that, suppresses NMDA receptor activity. Right. And so like if you take a lot of it, you can probably get like psychotic effects. I think I think there was one study recently that said it was only like three cups of coffee that are necessary before people start experiencing like like different checklist symptoms of uh, psychotic symptoms, like probably paranoia is probably what comes first mm. or like anxiety or whatever. Mm. Very interesting. All right. Well, we're pretty much, we're getting near to the end. Um, so, I mean, the reason why I really wanted to get you onto the show was to help people understand their brains a little bit better because that's ultimately what I'm all about. And to get people like yourself to discuss and brainstorm ideas um, in regards to hacking the brain, because I really want to give people the, the tools and the, the knowledge that they need to understand their own neurochemistry and then ultimately take control of that because I do believe that we as humans can definitely, you know, um, we, can, we can influence our thoughts and our behaviours through different uh, methods, through sauna use, through supplementation, through exercise, through diet. We've spoken about sauerkraut now. Um, there's so many, so many different systems and different inputs that can influence how we feel. So we've got a minute remaining on this IGTV. So maybe we'll just finish off by giving my listeners a chance for them to find you um, and your content. Do you want to just let them know your socials? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think you can probably click on my Instagram already. I'm guessing, uh, it's quirky science on there. Um, it's Q W E R K Y science. And for Twitter, Twitter, it's at basic morality, which is kind of sounds irrelevant, but it, uh, that's what it happens to be. So, um, and then for uh, my blog, that is pretty much like probably the most important thing. It is mad.science.blog. And I basically post a bunch of essays there and I cite everything. that's like intense literature view- reviews about just like a lot of topics about neurochemistry, sometimes philosophy and different stuff like that. And I do... Uh, want to say sorry if it was like a bit chaotic i am like sleep deprived and kind of like having some weird uh things going on at the same time so um it's a bit scatterbrained in adhd (laughs) 
thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.